Good morning, church family. It is such a joy to be back here with you this morning. I enjoyed my travels and my vacation last week, and I even enjoyed going to a small little church there on the beach that was very different than all of you. But while I was gone, I missed you a lot, so it's great to be here today. Today we are beginning a new series. We're going to begin to look at one of the most influential books of the New Bible, or the New Testament. One of the most influential letters to be written to the church throughout all of history. See, Romans is a really complicated letter. If you've ever tried to read it, Paul uses a lot of long, run-on sentences. A lot of drawn-out logic where he's trying to make a case for something and paint a picture of something that if you're not careful, you can just have your eyes kind of gloss over and go, what is this all about? And then you get to chapter 12, and it begins to get easier. It's like, hey, let your love be genuine. You're like, oh, I understand that. Whew, what a relief. Finally, something I can make sense of. But Romans is a spectacular book. It is a letter that is actually, I think, an essential summary of all of the Christian faith. And not only is it a summary of all that we believe, it's a letter written to really help us understand how the Old Testament still matters. See, all throughout the book of Romans, Paul is writing and he seeks to connect the dots between what people knew in the Old Testament to what they experienced in Jesus and to help them discover that through all of Scripture, it's all about one thing, Jesus. And when you and I begin to read Scripture through that lens that it's all about Him, we find it so much more fulfilling and meaningful and even challenging and the life he has in store for us. But to get to the book of Romans, to begin, we have to start someplace else. Anybody heard of the, the letter or the book called Acts? It's not a letter, it's a book. Anybody heard of the book of Acts? If you were here last summer, last summer we spent 12 weeks looking at the book of Acts. So hopefully if you were here a year ago, you've at least heard of it, even if you don't remember anything else we talked about, all right? The book of Acts is a history book written to describe what happened to the church and what the church did after Jesus died and then rose into heaven. How did his good news and the story he shared go from 12 ordinary unschooled guys to spread throughout all the land and become the religion of not only the empire, but now 2,000 years later of the entire West? You see, it's impossible today to live in the West without the influence of Christianity. And I'm not talking cultural Christianity where like everybody has a church but nobody goes or, you know, all these Southern things we say because, well, God bless you, but we don't actually believe it. Like, I'm not talking that kind of influence of Christianity. No, everything about all of the European history, all of North America's history, a lot of South American history, all of it has its roots in Christian thought. The way we think about one another, the way we relate to one another, the way we care for one another. And even at times, Christianity has been used inappropriately to justify a lot of heinous and horrible things. And so it's really helpful to understand how this tiny, ordinary group of people could change the world. And the book of Acts tells that. 
Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, in chapter 2, there's a story about Pentecost. Anybody ever heard of Pentecost? It was this really crazy day that Jesus had promised. He said, look, it's better that I leave you because when I leave you, I will send to you a helper, the Holy Spirit, one who will come and counsel you, who will guide you, who will lead you in the way that I have prepared for you. He promised to send the Spirit of God to dwell within His people for all time. And so after Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples, not really sure what to do now, just gather together and pray over and over again each day. And on the tenth day of doing this, now 50 days after Jesus had risen from the dead, they gather together and they start praying And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. In the book of Acts, it describes it like tongues of fire, which all throughout the Old Testament, God's presence is equated to or related to fire. He comes like a pillar of fire for the people in Exodus. He comes in great fire all the time to reveal His presence. And here, He's made His presence known to His disciples. And they begin to speak in all kinds of foreign tongues that they didn't know. And all the gatherers who were there, the people from all nations, from all over the Roman Empire, who had gathered there, Jewish people gathered to celebrate the Passover, begin to hear Peter speak. And if you remember, Peter was kind of a nincompoop. He often got it wrong. And Peter begins to speak and tell them about this Jesus whom they crucified, who was God and who has risen from the dead. And it says in Acts chapter 2, it says this. uh, It's describing all the people that are there. And it says, look, there are also some belonging to Serene and visitors from Rome. It's important to know that little bit of history, that there on Pentecost were people from Rome witnessing this miraculous moment of the Spirit coming upon the people, hearing the gospel, and some of them, Jewish believers, were among the 3,000 that day that it says became Christians and began to follow the way of Jesus. See, this is really important because as we look at what Paul writes, most of Paul's writings were to people he knew, right? Like the book of Ephesus is to the church in Ephesus, the church that he helped plant. Or the, the two books, the letters to the Corinthian people, he helped plant the church in Corinth. Time and time again, Paul writes to people whom he knows, and he writes to them because he helped get them started in their faith to help correct them when they've gone astray or encourage them when they're worn out and they're tired or remind them of what it is all about, the very reason some of them are giving their lives and dying. But in Rome, Paul doesn't know most of the church. See, he hasn't been there yet. Part of Paul's desire for writing this letter is to introduce himself to the people of Rome because he has this burning passion within him. He longs to go to Rome. Why? Well, if you know much about history, Rome for the Roman Empire was the center of all the kingdom. And Paul believed if he could bring the gospel to the people there in Rome... If somehow he could share with them this good news that it would change everything. Now as it unfolds, 
Paul does make it to Rome eventually, but not the way he plans. Eventually, Paul is arrested and in chains is taken to Rome on trial and spends his time in Rome on house arrest. Not quite the goal he had in mind, but still accomplishing the means, or the means to accomplish this end of sharing the good news with people who don't know it. So Paul is writing this letter to people he mostly doesn't know. But there is at least one couple he knew of that he met in the city of Corinth. Perhaps you've heard of this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. I can never pronounce that last name. Priscilla and Aquila were Romans who were likely a part of all kinds of unrest in Rome. You see, after those Jewish individuals, at the time of Pentecost, after they encountered Jesus through the Holy Spirit and they heard the gospel, they went back to Rome with the goal of following Jesus there in Rome. And so these Jewish people began to live out their faith in a way that caused all kinds of unrest in the community. Now, pause for a moment. Today we live in an age where Christians often cause all kinds of unrest in communities. But not always the way we should. Sometimes we cause all kinds of unrest because Target's done it again and we need to find something to protest and boycott. Sometimes we cause all kinds of unrest because we make ourselves known with political opinions that have very little to do with Jesus. Sometimes we cause all kinds of unrest because I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes Christians are the worst kind of people. And they're like, well, I love Jesus, but you, let me tell you why you suck. You're like, thank you. Uh, I don't think I want anything to do with that. But there in the city of Rome, prior to Paul writing, prior to him coming, there was unrest caused likely by Christians, but we don't know what kind of unrest. See, there's a guy named Claudius, a leader of Rome, and in in 49 AD, so roughly uh, 10 or 15 years after Jesus and his death and his ascension, he issues an edict to all the Christians in Rome, he kicks them out. Specifically, it says in one of the documents we have, at the instigation of Crestus, there was this unrest. And we don't know who Crestus was. That was a common name used for slaves. So perhaps there was one individual who instigated the problem and therefore he kicked all the Christians out. Or perhaps it's a translation or, or like a typo because everything was handwritten over time. Maybe they changed it. And it was actually Christus, which would be Christ. The unrest caused by the, these individuals or this one individual. For some reason, the leader of Rome was inspired to kick everybody who was Christian out. Now, to our best knowledge, there were probably about 60,000 Christians of some sort in Rome before Paul wrote this letter to them. And not all of them ever actually did get kicked out, but we also see in the book of Acts that Priscilla and Aquila, this couple that Paul meets, were probably among those who were kicked out. It says in Acts chapter 18, it says this, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Now that says Jews and not Christians. Why? Because up until this point, there weren't really Christians as we know them today. 
There were Jewish people who followed Christ, and eventually that went on to become the people of the way, that is, the people who followed the way of Christ. And then that changed into Christians, which literally means little Christs. Now imagine this. If you today were to cause unrest in our community, because when people saw you, they saw a little bit of Christ. And they looked at you and they pictured you as just a tiny version of what Christ is actually like. Maybe that unrest would be good unrest. So Priscilla and Aquila, they meet Paul in Corinth. And uh, eventually they go on to disciple a guy named Apollos who does some pretty big things in Scripture. Uh, But they were tent makers. They shared the same profession as Paul. You see, at the time, most people who shared the good news, who preached the word, did not receive a regular paycheck from the church. They had to support themselves by their own means. And so Paul would habitually continue in the task he already knew as a means of supporting all of his missionary endeavors. And so he, in Corinth, he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila, these two who had come from Rome, probably because they were helping cause the unrest from Christians or Jews. And Paul meets them. Now we know that they're now back in Rome because at the very end of the book of Romans, this letter, Paul writes a bunch of personal greetings. Imagine writing a letter to people you've never met trying to convince them that the thing you have to say to them is really important. Well, maybe it would be helpful in that letter to connect the dots of who you are with people they know, people they're well acquainted with, and say, hey, those people, they can vouch for me. They can tell you who I am and what I've done and why the things I say are worth listening to. And Priscilla and Aquila are among the 26 people Paul personally addresses at the end of the letter. It's like, look, if you want testimony to everything I've said that this is all true and all worth listening to, go talk to those people. I hope to see you soon. This is Paul's letter to them. Now, because of the Christianity that has come from Pentecost, these Jewish Christians who are there, and because of the unrest, and because they were scattered by Claudius, the people who followed Jesus in Rome looked very different than the people who followed Jesus in Corinth or Ephesus, as an example. You see, in Corinth and Ephesus and these other places Paul had been, he came into a place that mostly didn't know anything about Jesus. And most of the people present were Gentile, or that is, non-Jewish individuals. And so there Paul would have to preach and teach and help them understand not only the Old Testament, but also how Jesus is meaningful for them. How he is the fulfillment of all the promises God has ever made and everything they've ever thought they needed. And in many cases, he actually had to connect the dots to how Jesus was better than and greater than the idols they worshipped and the gods and the goddesses they bowed down to. Here's why he's the only one you need. And none of the others will be enough. And when he successfully did this, the church in each place was a unified body. This is why Paul doesn't write to the congregation of the point in Ephesus or to the first Christian church there in this place. No, he writes to the church. 
because the church in each town and city was unified as one group of believers. Often they would meet in several different small house churches, and by small house churches, I mean really wealthy people would open up their house and have like a hundred people over. So it wasn't that small, but it was smaller than maybe some of the mega churches we think of today. They would gather in people's houses and they would share a meal and they would hear the word and they would encourage one another and they'd take care of each other and they would be strengthened for whatever may come. Because in those days, depending on who was the leader, all kinds of hardship and suffering may come. But in Rome, because they didn't have any one singular moment of somebody coming and unifying them, The people who followed God in Rome were incredibly fractioned. There were some who thought this was the right way, and some who thought that was the right way, and some who had a partial understanding because they weren't witnesses at Pentecost, they just heard stories, and some who had a different understanding, and they were all disunified and jealous of one another. You ever lived in a city where churches fought one another and saw each other as competition and not Partners co-laboring in the same endeavor? It would be really hard to be excited about the mission of any one of those churches when there's not that unity in the church as a whole. So Paul is writing to these people who he has mostly not met, who are mostly Jewish with a little bit of history of the Jewish understanding and now a brief understanding of Jesus, who are largely fighting with each other over who's right and who's wrong. Does that sound at all like maybe we could learn from Romans as well here in Knoxville? Surely the church in Knoxville is all unified, right? And the unrest we're causing is all because we look like Christ, right? So Paul's writing to these people with this goal. Paul desires to visit Rome so that in Rome he can help share the gospel with the hopes that those like Claudius and other leaders would come to be saved. So he's writing to introduce himself. He has plans to go visit. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 19, he's delivering to Jerusalem some offering that was taken up because there was a famine and the Christians in Jerusalem were starving to death. And so in all these churches he had planted, he went and visited and said, it's our job to help feed them. Let's raise up some money and I will take it to them to help them. And so he's delivering to Jerusalem this money for the famine relief. And it says this in Acts 19. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Archaea and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul has it in his mind to visit a people he hasn't yet met. And so he's writing this letter to serve as an introduction. But also to summarize all the things that the Jewish people believe and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. His goal in writing these things and teaching this basics of theology is that the church would stop being fractioned and separated and jealous and angry and would begin to look like one body working together for the sake of the gospel. And ultimately, he also had another motive that we find in chapter 15 of this letter. Paul believes that when he arrives in Rome and when the church is unified and when they are working together with one common goal, that he can ask them for financial support 
to help the endeavor he had. See, Paul had a vision bigger than Rome. Rome was the the center of the entire empire. But there were fragments on the edge, places like Spain that were largely not paid attention to. And Paul believed, if only I could go even further than Rome, to the ends of the earth, to Spain itself, then we could share the gospel in all places. And when we do, Christ will return. And what a glorious day. And so Paul's endeavor in writing is the hopes that he can along the way gain some support from some of them to help him share the gospel in new places with new people. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week when we get into the second section of Romans. But first, let's just begin with what Paul has to say in his introduction in this letter. If you'd like to follow along in the Blue Bibles, it's page 1172. Feel free to use your own Bibles or your phones if you would like. Paul, he writes this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to pause a lot along the way as we read through this because I think there's so much to gain from taking our time in individual words and in Scripture itself. Paul chooses to use the language of servant. And if you know anything about Greek, this word comes up often in almost every Bible that has footnotes. We'll give you a little footnote that says that actually the word here is slave, but since our modern context of slavery is so different, we usually translate it as servant. Paul, he begins by calling himself a servant of Christ, a slave to Christ. This is incredibly strong language. You see, Paul, as he introduces himself, does not see him one who by voluntary compulsion says, I feel like today's a good day to talk about Jesus. He doesn't see him as one who says, some days I want to do what Jesus wants, and other days I'm just going to kick back and relax and leave that for somebody else to do. Paul sees himself as bound to do nothing other than to serve God, to follow after him. If you know anything about Paul and his history, Paul hated Christians and persecuted Christians and threw them in jail and sought to kill them. And Jesus showed up directly to him and he had an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul turned his way around in that moment from hating Christians to giving everything he had in his life to serve Christ. Also, there's some value in writing to Jewish people in identifying himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, Moses is called by God as a servant of God. And David is called a servant of God. And Joshua and the prophets and so many of the men of the Old Testament and even some of the women of the Old Testament were given this title of a servant of God. So right off the bat as he introduces himself, Paul is identifying the things he has to say and the message to come from him as synonymous with that of Moses and Joshua and David and the prophets. Just as they were all servants, so too am I bound to only do what God has me to do. These are not my words. This is not my opinion. This is not my preference. This is what God has for you as his people. 
Now, traditional letters at this time would have three things in the beginning. They would have the name of the one who's sending the letter. They would have the people to whom the letter is sent to. And then finally, they would have, along with this, the name, the people, and then they would have a greeting, some kind of, hello, let's get started. And usually, it was really brief. In most letters, it's super brief. In fact, in a lot of Paul's letters, he simply begins, I, Paul to the people of, of the, the church in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. Over and over again, it's that simple. But in Romans, as we begin, what we see is the first six verses of his letter are him describing who he is as the one writing. Specifically, why is it important to know who the sender is? He doesn't even get to who he's addressing until verse 7. And this was very consistent with official Roman letters. If you were to receive any kind of official, legally binding communication, it would begin with a lengthy description of who the sender is and why they're writing to you. So for the readers of this, when they begin to hear Paul's letter read aloud to them, right off the bat they're hearing not only a connection to the Old Testament, but that what Paul has to say is not just a choice. It is the official position of the church. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. An apostle means one who is sent with a delegated responsibility, one who is given the responsibility like an ambassador to speak on behalf of another, who is sent out to go with a mission and a purpose. Paul says, look, I am called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. There's a play on words here, a little bit of a pun. Anybody in here a fan of good puns? Okay, a handful of you, and the rest of you are lying. (laughs) I love a good pun. And Paul, he has one here that we in English don't catch, but anybody Jewish hearing it in Greek would have immediately caught his little play on words. You see, he uses for the word set apart, he uses the word ferimenos, which is similar to to the same word we get Pharisee from. If you know Paul's life, he had been a Pharisee. That literally means one who is set apart for the law of God. And if you recall, the Pharisees often were very legalistic and often very religious in a way that actually ended up putting Christ on the cross and crucifying him. And this was who Paul was but now using a very similar sounding word to describe one who is set apart. He says he's no longer set apart for the law, but he is set apart for the gospel. As we read this letter, you're going to find that there are things in this letter that are incredibly challenging and even incredibly uncomfortable. In fact, in some of the unrest you may have experienced, perhaps you've seen Christians using this letter in really out-of-context ways to condemn some or to justify some or or whatever they wanted, but in ways that were less than Christ-like. I invite you as we read this letter over the next few weeks and then come back to it a little bit after that, I invite you to recognize that Paul sees everything he is doing as being bound to the gospel of God. This letter is not one intended to condemn you or me. 
It's not contended to convince you to work harder or try more or do better. This letter is intended to communicate to you and me a promise. God has already done it all. God can handle all of your mess and clean up all of your mistakes and He can make even you new. This letter, while often used to condemn, is intended from the very start to communicate. The thing that unites the church is not our stance on alcohol or our stance on this or our stance on that. No, the thing that unites the church is this good news of Jesus. That He has done it all and you and I are not only forgiven, but are being remade new in His likeness. Not by our works, not by our effort, not by our struggles, but simply because God is always faithful to do what He promises to do. Paul, an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, he says, look, the only reason I am here, the only reason I'm writing to you, the only thing you need to know is that everything God promised concerning His Son in the past has come to pass. Everything He said He would do, He has done. In the flesh, God has come according to His power through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul's entire mission is so that through the proclamation of this good news, through the grace given, the obedience of faith would be created in those who are in Rome. Oftentimes we think of obedience and faith as contrary. One is believing and one is doing. But that's not the way Scripture works. Obedience is the natural overflow of faith. This is where in the book of James he says, faith without works is dead. Maybe you're familiar with that verse. And through history, we've twisted this to say you have to do works to prove your faith. Or we've twisted this to say you have to do works in order to gain faith. And what we find in this letter is Paul does not agree with either of those. Instead, he says, when you are filled with faith by God, it overflows into obeying the things He has for you. Life will always be better when you do it in submission to the plan God has for you and not against it every time. Finally, after all of this, Paul gets to the people he's writing. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. 
See, here he does not use the word ecclesia, which is often used for the church or the people, the gathering together, this unified body. Here he simply says to everybody in Rome who is loved by God and called to be saints. I love how Paul concludes this little introduction. When he addresses the people, he says, if you are among those loved by God, it starts with being loved. Nothing he says next matters if you are not those loved by God. The wrath that we see doesn't matter. The freedom and the forgiveness we see doesn't matter. The opportunity for a whole new life where your life looks more like Christ and less like you, none of that matters if you are not first loved by God. To understand Romans rightly, we have to begin here. All of this comes down to a promise. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And it's not just this cute fairy tale kind of love where everything is happy and great. No, it's a deep embodying love that says, I will give everything I have for your sake because you're worth it. It says, to those who are loved and called to be saints. See, Paul says he believes that when we are loved by God, God invites us or calls us, he beckons us to come into something new to be saints, those who are holy, not with a self-righteousness, not with a holiness that comes from being better than everybody else, not with our nose stuck in the air, no, called to be holy as God himself is holy and gives it to us. In fact, in verses 16 and 17, he describes the very holiness we're supposed to have. In 17, he says, For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Look, it is a gift from Him. Here in this place, we could say that our very articulation of loved by God and called to be saints can be summarized in a little bit different language, but the same idea. Come as you are does not matter where you've been or where you are. It does not matter what you've done or even what you're still doing. Come just like that because you're loved. And often you'll hear us say, become who God made you to be. It's the call to be saints. Your life will be better when you are transformed in Christ into somebody new. Not somebody self-righteous and holier than thou. That's terrible. Somebody who is loved by God and made new in His image. He says, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he introduces his letter to them. The sender, Paul, sent by God, coming with a message that has been declared from the beginning of time to all those in Rome who are loved and called into a new life, called to be saints. Here's what he has to say as a greeting. Grace. He begins with this unmerited favor, this great gift. He says, what I want to give to you is 
grace and peace. Now in the Greek custom, they would have used something similar to grace, though not grace itself, as if just saying greetings or hello. Like, hey, grace to you, all right, and then we keep going. Paul, he begins with grace, but not in the Greek custom. He says, look, all of our Christian faith, all of our brotherhood, all of our unity, everything we do starts from an unmerited favor of God. So let me give that to you. And in the Jewish custom, whenever they would greet one another, they would greet each other with the word shalom, which is peace. This idea that whenever I come into contact with another, it is my hope and my prayer that they would receive in their interaction with me peace from God. That I would be a source of peace to them, and in turn, they would be a source of peace to me. And so Paul begins his letter, grace and peace to all of you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we dive into this letter going further, as we hear all the things he has to say in the weeks to come that are hard to hear and difficult to see, know this, it all comes back to this one gift of God, grace and peace. You are loved and not condemned. You have received already unmerited favor, and as a result, May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your heart and your mind in Christ until he comes. This is why Paul writes to a people that are broken and fractured. If you've ever experienced a broken and fractured church, I believe these next several weeks can be a source of encouragement that what we have seen is not what we must be. And you and I together as a church can begin to be called to be saints, different than we've been before in Christ. Will you pray with me today? God, you have come that we might know you. You have offered to your church grace and peace, unmerited favor, supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding. As Paul is writing to a fractured church, would we hear his challenges and his encouragement that where there is fracturing in our church, we would be unified. Where there is fracturing in the church in Knoxville, we would seek to be those who are a little bit of Christ, bringing healing and reconciliation. We thank you that all of this letter points to the reality that your promises from the beginning of time are true in Jesus. May we draw closer to you together. May we experience your goodness and be filled with your faith. God, we pray that in us, your kingdom would come and your will would be done that we would be your people who cause an unrest in this city, not for selfish gain or for our own agendas, but cause an unrest by a radical love and care for one another, by a grace and a peace given to those who do not expect it, that all may know that you 
love us and have called us to be yours. God, today we pray for those who are sick in our congregation. We pray for Kylie, for Nicole, for Shirley, and for Charles, for Michael. Lord, we pray for Susan as she cares for her mom, as her mom nears death, and this burden of care has been exhausting. Strengthen Dan and Susan in these final days. Help them to love well and to draw near to each other and to you in this time. God, we thank you that you are faithful to hear all of our prayers and to answer them. So now we pray together with one voice as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we continue our worship, we are going to continue by collecting an offering. In this place, we believe an offering is an opportunity to trust in God. We believe everything we have comes from Him, and nothing we have would we have if it wasn't for Him. And so, by consistently giving and growing in generosity, we believe it's an opportunity to say, this is a source of stress. Anybody ever been stressed by finances before? God, I'm giving this to you, and I'm trusting that you will provide for all my needs. And so if you're here today and you're seeking for ways to grow in generosity and to learn to trust in God and all things, one way you can do that is by giving. So if you came prepared to give today and you would like to give with cash or check, you can do so in the little black boxes as you exit. And if you filled out one of those physical connect cards with a way we can connect with you or pray with you, you can place that in the box as well as you exit. And if you're somebody who prefers to do everything online, you can do so at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. You can both connect with us there or make a gift there. However you give or whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Now, every week we invite questions and I do my best to respond to them. So, Caitlin, what questions came in this week? So, we do have a question from last week. It is, um, who is Baal? So, I think this is actually two weeks ago. There was one that came in about, like, why did people worship them? And I was a little confused about, were they just talking idols in general or what? And I think they were referring specifically to Baal, who is mentioned in Second Kings. Uh, Baal is, is kind of two things. Uh, in a lower case, it would just be the Hebrew word for God, and not like any god, but like all gods, right? Every god could be called Baal, but that's not the specific name of any one god. Uh, but in the Canaanite religion, if it's an uppercase B in the Bible, that would imply not just gods, but one specific god, and it was a, a Canaanite or the people in the land before Israel. Uh, it was their god of fertility and rain. And so when they wanted it to rain in the desert, what did they do? They worshiped their god through fertile acts. And doing fertile things would then help you bless this God. So if that raises more questions with you about who this God was, let's just be thankful that our God does not ask that of us. All right? 
Okay, the next question says, do you think that the Old Testament laws were given to the people because they didn't have the Holy Spirit to help them understand what was right and wrong? Was the Old Te- were the Old Testament laws given? That's a great question. I think that's a part of it. In fact, part of what we see in the next couple of chapters of Romans that we'll get to, um, Paul actually spells out why the laws helped us to see our own inadequacies and how the laws helped us to see that we cannot, by our own accord, be perfect. We need a God to come in and redeem and restore us. So part of it was absolutely um, to show them what was right and wrong to help them to live closer to the right way of living. Okay, the next question says, this is more of a public service announcement. Religious trauma is starting to be diagnosed and treated in the mental health community. If you were considered less than, lived with rigid standards, or were oppressed due to religious standards, you can seek help to address religious trauma syndrome. Address religious trauma center? Is that a a place? Syndrome. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, religious trauma happens, and um, you can find all kinds of mental health to care for it. Um, providers, some of them who will try to help lead you back to a healthy understanding of religion and faith, and some of them who will try to lead you away from an understanding of religion and faith. So um, I would say talk to somebody, and I'll gladly listen if you would like. Okay, the next one says, wouldn't there be a sense of humility by admitting there are things that we could get wrong? Is there a sense of humility by admitting there are things you can get wrong? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is okay to say we may be wrong in some things. Um, but I also think that it's not arrogant or prideful to say I'm right in certain things. Like, I don't think anybody in this room, at least, would think I'm prideful to say I believe gravity exists. Right? Like, it's not arrogant to believe in some things that simply are. Uh, where it does get dangerous is sometimes believing, and this is where the church has become so fractioned, Believing that a certain perspective is the only perspective, uh, sometimes that can be dangerous. Sometimes it's true. The world is round, whether you want to think of it as a pizza and flat and round, or if you want to think of it as a globe and round. It's still round. I would say it's probably smarter to recognize it's a globe and not flat, but I'm not going to go there too far as a requirement here, okay? Um, So there's certainly certain things that simply are true, but there's a lot of things that are up for discussion. And this is where we use the creeds. We most commonly recite the Apostles' Creed, but there's two other main church creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. If we recited the Athanasian Creed here, we'd be here all day long. It's super long. But these three were the church, the early church, within a few hundred years of Jesus, really looking at Scripture and the things he taught and saying, what is essential to believe about who our God is and what he has done? And there's a lot of things that are not included as essential, such as should you drink alcohol or not drink alcohol, or should you go to church on Sundays or on Saturdays? Like that's not included in the essential things you need to believe to be Christian, all right? Now, can you be a a good person and not be Christian? Maybe, yeah. But if the goal is to be a good person, we're all in trouble. The goal is to have new life and life everlasting, and that we cannot get from trying hard enough. Okay, the next one says, what is it Jesus did? What is it Jesus did? Yes. That is a very open-ended question. Uh, He did a lot of things. Uh, 
He is God incarnate, the one who created the whole world by speaking it into existence. And then He took on flesh and became a human and He lived like you and me and He experienced all kinds of temptation and sorrow and pain and all the joys of being a person and all the challenges of being a person. And He knew all about hunger and all about pain and tears and laughter. And then Jesus living perfectly without sin, suffered at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish leaders who were so misguided in their religious understanding that they believed He was a danger and not the truth. And then, just as He promised, three days after His death, He rose again from the dead and later rose into heaven to sit with God on the throne for all of time. So there's one way that we can say what, he, what did he do. Then he also did things like he would regularly go away and take time to pray. So maybe in our lives, if we want to be like Jesus, we should take time to pray. He would regularly uh, take time and just be by himself. And maybe we need to turn off all the noise of the world and take some time for some so- silence or solitude. He would regularly practice the Sabbath, but not in the way that the Pharisee religious leaders did, where they could only take so many steps every day, but where he regularly centered his life in the peace and the rest that God gives. And so maybe we should practice Sabbath. And so if you want to learn about some of the habits and the practices, obviously you and I cannot do what Jesus did and be perfect and suffer and die for the sins of others, but we can do these habits to become more like him, spending time in prayer or together with others, spending time with sinners who are not like us as Jesus did. And So if you want to do that, you can learn more about it on Wednesday at our Potluck and Practices. So join me there, all right? Speaking of Wednesday, this question says, what is the theme for uh, this Wednesday's Potluck and what will be provided by the point? I think we're doing hamburgers and hot dogs this week. We're going to grill them. And then future weeks, we've got some pulled pork and some tacos and something else. We'll tell you as we go. But I think this week, if you want to bring a food that goes really well with hamburgers or hot dogs, go for it. Or if you want to bring toppings for hamburgers, go for it. Okay, we have two more questions. It's, uh, why does it matter that Jesus did that? Why does it matter Jesus did all of that? Man, this is a big question I cannot in 30 seconds answer fully. So briefly, I will say it matters that Jesus did all of that Because after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sinned, all of creation from the trees to the tide to you and me, everything is broken and not as it should be. And none of us can fix it on our own. And so why it matters that Jesus did that is because God himself is the only one capable of being perfect and taking the death that is deserved as a result of that brokenness. And because he then rose from the dead, you and I can have confidence that he is going to do all the things he's promised, and he will restore everything one day. And so, as we read through the rest of the book of Romans, you will see these very questions are the things Paul writes to the church in Rome. Who is Jesus? Why does it matter? What do we do about it? Let's get after it and chase it, okay? Okay, this one has... Mm, two from the same person that I read earlier. It says, what's a gospel? That's a great question. Uh, the Greek word gospel means good news. And at the time, anytime a new political leader would take charge, 
I don't know if you've ever seen this in American politics. Every politician promises that they have all the answers and they will fix every problem and the other guy is the problem. So if you vote for that guy or that gal, then all the problems will go away. And then we elect somebody and then all the problems go away, right? Sadly, no. This isn't a new thing. Um, Every person in leadership for all of time has said, I have answers to the questions and I have ways to make things right. And so the gospel, the good news, anytime a leader would come on the scene in Rome and take charge, whether it was a local king or the emperor of the entire uh, area, they would send out messengers who would proclaim to everybody, behold, we have this leader who will bring to us peace and everything will go well. Just make sure you pay your taxes and your dues and do the right things. And so this language of good news was normal for the people. But Christians, they embraced this language to be not just generic good news, but actual good news. What is the greatest news any one of us could hear? That is that God himself has come down to be with us because he loves us and that he will forevermore be on your side and restore everything that is broken and he's doing it in his son, Jesus. So this is the briefest what is the gospel that Jesus God's only son is restoring everything that is broken my son's children's bible uses the phrase making all sad things come untrue and I really love that way of thinking about the gospel okay last question uh what did his death do what did his death do what did the death of Jesus do Also coming up in Romans, we see that the wages of sin, the natural result, not the angry, wrathful God's decision, the natural consequence of rebelling against God was was sorrow and sickness and pain and death. So every one of us is going to die, and every one of us will experience pain and sorrow and tears at some point. But... Because Jesus did not need to die and he voluntarily did die in our place, he's able to offer that for our forgiveness and restoration. So because he died, you and I, though we may physically die, in fact, we will physically die, every one of us, we have been promised that Christ is restoring us and just as he rose from the dead, you and I will rise from the dead as well. And not only that, this isn't just a promise for the future, that life he has to offer of grace and peace and hope and love and all of these things he gives to us now. So that even now, while we still continue to sin and goof up all the time, we can be called saints, those who are holy those who are like God, though we are not God ourselves. This is what his death did in brief summary. Also, I told you guys to give the tough questions to the other Adam last week, but <laughs> thanks for saving them. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. Whew. I, I'm sure there will be some that come in this week uh, online or, or via this text throughout the week. You can text them in at any point. I'll do my best to respond to them uh, future weeks. So with that, um, Charles, I'll just come chat. We'll chat one-on-one. Just one question. What time is it? We didn't... Oh, 6.30. Thank you. It's a great question. 
6.30 to 8, you can find more at thepointknox.com. Just click on the events section. I found out that time myself earlier today in that very same spot. So there you go. All right. Thank you for that. As you go this week, then, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.